Welcome to the podcast of the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. I'm Matthew Hofarth. Today is March 11, 2021, and I'm speaking with Audra Wolf, who is the author of Freedom's Laboratory, The Cold War Struggle for the Soul of Science. Thank you for joining us, Audra. Thanks so much for having me. To start, could you provide us with an overview of the state of science in the United States at the end of World War II? Well, sure. You know, I think in uh, most of my scholarship, including both this book and my first book, Competing with the Soviets, I was really interested in getting at this special relationship that that science really had to state power in the uh, early years of the Cold War, especially in the years right after the end of World War II. And, you know, there were a lot of reasons for this, but a lot of it had to do with the, the role that the Allies saw for science in ending the war. So they tended to credit things like the atomic bomb and radar and the proximity fuse. They looked to those achievements as really uh, the reasons for their success in winning the war. And so they really wanted to make sure that uh, state powers would have access to similar kinds of uh, scientific insights and technological achievements and if there was another coming world war. In practice, what that meant in the United States was that you had unprecedented support for uh, federal investment in science and technology. Um, A lot of this investment went directly uh, via military agencies or or via the Department of Defense. Um, Some of the other funding went through agencies that, even if they weren't officially defense agencies, they were involved in defense considerations. So, uh, for instance, the Atomic Energy Commission uh, funded uh, a vast amount of research in genetics uh, in the 1950s because they were interested in understanding the effects of radiation on, um, on inheritance. So particularly through the 1950s, you saw agencies like the Office of uh, Naval Research or various groups within the Army or the AEC uh, funding just a lot of research, both in the academy and in private industry. And then what you see in the late 1950s, particularly after the launch of the Soviet Sputnik, is uh, more federal investment, even in basic research, kind of civilian agencies through the National Science Foundation. And then aside from just all the money, the amount of money was just really difficult to wrap your heads around during this time period, particularly during the Apollo years in the 1960s. Um, But this was also a period when scientists in the United States really had unprecedented, probably unequaled uh, power, uh, both their access to power and in some cases uh, as policymakers themselves. You know, particularly during the Kennedy administration, we had uh, scientists and people with kind of other kinds of technical background at all levels of the administration. So it was really a a unique period in American history for the role of science and, and scientists and their access to power. And how did science become a tool of cultural diplomacy and international relations during the Cold War? The thing to understand about the Cold War was that the United States and the Soviet Union both saw this very much as an ideological war, as a total war, really a contest between capitalism and communism. And so what this meant was that uh, both countries were really seeing their way of life as uh, something that was under threat, but also as a tool that could be used to uh, attract the uh, allegiances of people all over the world, particularly uh, people in uh, newly decolonizing countries. So the United States really was, was investing in various kinds of psychological warfare in really all areas of life, everything from arts and sport to uh, you know, dance, uh, obviously economics, and science was part of this. Science, you know, as an important part of American life, was part of these broader cultural and psychological campaigns. 
Now, there were other more specific reasons why science uh, was was part of these campaigns. And part of it had to do with timing and it had to do with an American uh, uh, caricature of what was happening in the Soviet Union. So these psychological warfare uh, battles were really ramping up in 1947 and 1948. And that was around the same time that in the Soviet Union, a Ukrainian agronomist by the name of Trofim Lysenko uh, really consolidated his power over Soviet genetics. Um, and so the timing of those two events really gave the Americans a political gift in talking about uh, how science should operate to scientists around the world, but particularly scientists in Western Europe. And so the Americans constructed this notion, of really this caricature of what science in the Soviet Union was like. And then they tried to say that American science was the opposite of that. So according to the Americans, science in the Soviet Union was, it was based on dogma. Uh, it was subject to political kind of litmus test. It was heavily dependent on technological solutions, really uh, based on uh, problem solving as opposed to abstract knowledge creation. And it was intensely nationalist. So the Americans really built a notion of science that was supposed to be the opposite of that. In the United States, supposedly, science was going to be um, empirical. Uh, it was going to be free of politics. Uh, it was going to be focused on basic research so that you really could look at abstract knowledge as opposed to kind of technology for the people. And science in the United States was supposed to be intensely international, this idea that science has no borders. Now, what I want to make really clear is that all of these were uh, fairly aspirational claims on the Americans' parts. Uh, this was a period when the military was funding more research than uh, at any other time. And American scientists were uh, subject to many different kinds of loyalty tests and other kinds of restrictions on their activities. And certainly a lot of the research that was being funded was not based on abstract research, and a lot of it was considered state secrets. But the specific image of science as being empirical, apolitical, international, uh, and basic really became part of the American image and, and really part of American uh, cultural campaigns around the world. Who were the key individuals and organizations using science for political purposes during the Cold War? And what types of activities were they engaged in? So in the past 15 years or so, some of the most interesting work in the field of diplomatic history has really been looking at these various kinds of cultural campaigns. And a lot of that literature splits into works that focus on either uh, overt state campaigns. Uh, so for instance, uh, uh, campaigns that were conducted by the State Department or by uh, acknowledged government entities like Voice of America broadcasts, while another strain of this research is really focused on uh, covert cultural propaganda. Um, and these might be activities that were carried out, really funded by the CIA, and in some cases actively carried out by the CIA, but without uh, acknowledging that, and sometimes even without the knowledge of some of the people who were participating in it. Another strand of this research is really focused on uh, private actors, uh, groups of individuals who are involved in kind of private diplomatic campaigns. So the problem is that these clear distinctions between overt and covert, between public and private, don't necessarily map very well onto the campaigns involving science. And the most important reason for that is that if the main message that you are trying to convey is that the government is not overly involved in science in the United States, it's very difficult to promote that message in an overtly uh, kind of an acknowledged government campaign, right? It's, it's inherently contradictory. So in science, even more so than in some of these other areas of cultural diplomacy, most of these campaigns were actually carried out 
in one kind of arm's length relationship or another. Um, and especially after 1960, this became explicit U.S. policy to carry out science diplomacy efforts through private organizations. One way that this worked out in the 1950s involved the State Department and its relationship with the National Academies of Science. The State Department had been attempting to establish uh, a role for science attaches during this time period. Uh, they could be kind of informal intelligence collectors. They could also just make it easier for scientists to collaborate across borders, and they could be a resource for American scientists who were traveling abroad. But Congress didn't want to fund these science attaches because part of the attaches' jobs often involved talking with scientists who had communist affiliations. And so Congress was very skeptical of this and thought it was a security risk. So they were not, for the most part, willing to fund that work. What they were willing to do, however, was to give the State Department money that the State Department could then give to the National Academies of Science and basically contract that work out to the National Academies. So for most of the 1950s, the National Academies was doing really just nuts and bolts logistical work that you might associate with the science office of the State Department. They were um, identifying which people might be the ones who would be most appropriate to go to international conferences. They were involved in visa cases. Um, kind of all of these issues that you might think would be uh, appropriate for a government agency, the National Academies was handling explicitly because they were not an official government agency. I mentioned earlier this concept of covert cultural diplomacy, uh, some of the CIA's cultural operations. The CIA had, had various relationships with organizations that some were more tightly controlled than others. Uh, so one example was the Congress for Cultural Freedom, which was basically a group of non-communist intellectuals that was receiving funding from the CIA, uh, but often kind of pursued topics that they were interested in. They were building a lot of relationships, uh, especially with European intellectuals. And at the other end of that spectrum, there were organizations like the Asia Foundation, which from its founding in 1954 until 1967, was basically a proprietary agency of the CIA that looked like and operated as a uh, private foundation that worked on uh, kind of democracy building efforts in countries on the perimeter of the People's Republic of China. So both the Congress for Cultural Freedom and the Asia Foundation had programming in science. Uh, in the Congress for Cultural Freedom, these programs often involved scientists getting together and uh, promoting ideas about science and freedom. Uh, for the Asia Foundation, they were more interested in uh, development programs. So a lot of their work really looks like work that uh, USAID, another overt government agency, was carrying out uh, in countries that were newly independent. But so the Asia Foundation was thinking about what is the role of science in furthering development? And so they were making partnerships with groups of actually private American scientists. Uh, for instance, scientists involved in textbook uh, adaptation programs during the 1950s and 1960s to, to think about how we could take these emerging ideas from Americans about how science operates and really export them to other parts of the world. Uh, so these are very complicated relationships. 
And I think if you sit down and read my book, it's important not to get really caught up in, in even the specifics of, is this a CIA group or is this a State Department group or is this a private group? The broader point is much more that both the private citizen scientists and these cultural diplomats or the people who are working at the State Department, all of them are invested in promoting the same idea about how science works in the United States and science's relationship with certain ideas about liberal democracy. So no matter where the check is actually coming from, they're invested in the same kinds of results and the same kinds of ideas about the relationship between science and freedom. You've mentioned a very close working relationship between the National Academies and the State Department, the CIA, with the Congress for Cultural Freedom. Were there any disputes or controversies between these groups that you've mentioned? Yes. Well, so it's one thing for all of these different groups to use this language that science has no borders and science has no politics. But of course, some of these are actually political groups. Some of these are federal agencies. And so some of the people saying science has no politics mean it more so than others. Um, And one moment where you can really see this tension playing out is in the late 1950s on the topic of the United States relationship to countries that it did not recognize. So in the late 1950s, several communist countries began making more explicit bids to participate in international scientific organizations. So uh, the People's Republic of China, um, North Korea, and East Germany in particular wanted to be more active in international scientific organizations. The State Department's policy towards uh, these countries that the United States did not recognize at this time meant that you could not have acknowledged U.S. government representatives really in the same meeting with uh, representatives from these other countries. And so this really became a problem for science, raising the question of, does science have to follow the same rules as the rest of government or not? Um, And I I think of this as scientific exceptionalism. This, This question is really scientific exceptionalism. Are the rules governing science different? Should there be an exception for science policy? So, you know, this was particularly a problem for science because the argument that the United States was making was that, you know, science is apolitical in the United States. So the United States couldn't figure out what to do if they sent their representatives to a meeting where there were also scientists there from China. Um, None of their options were great. They could make a stink about this. Uh, by which, you know, they would be uh, politicizing science. They could stop sending their own representatives to this meeting, but it was also true that the Americans were relying on these kind of gatherings for a kind of light, open intelligence gathering. And so the United States would actually lose some material benefit if it stopped participating in these meetings. Or it could say, you know what, these rules don't apply to science, actually. And so there was a a quite heated debate in the late 1950s between the scientists at the National Academies of Science and the scientists at the State Department. The scientists at the State Department were saying, look, this is U.S. policy. It doesn't make sense to have policy that doesn't apply across the board. Whereas the scientists at the National Academies were saying, no, 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 no. If we're going to make this argument about scientific prestige and scientific cooperation and internationalism, we have to make it across the board. Now, the answers to that question have been different at different points of time during the Cold War. In the early 1950s, um, you know, Congress said, no, we don't want the State Department doing this. Science isn't different. If, you know, scientists have to talk to communists, we don't want to invest in science. We don't want to invest in scientific attaches. Whereas after 1960, there was actually an exception made for science. 
through an arm's length relationship. So a U.S. representative couldn't go to these meetings if their representation had been approved by, say, the State Department. But if you had the National Academies um, kind of tap them as a representative, it would be okay. So you have these elaborate kind of sleight of hand, administrative sleight of hand, to figure out how to bend the rules just enough so that the United States could still participate in these meetings without appearing to politicize science. We have a guest question from a friend of the consortium. Here's his question. My name is Daniel Sanford, and I have a question about the Developing Scientific Minds chapter. The work of the Biological Sciences Curriculum Study Group uh, in building new models of study to address the perceived gap uh, in scientific education with the Soviet Union seems very similar to the current discussions about the United States falling behind China, Russia, and other nations in programming skills. Is there a clear line to be traced between the modern learn-to-code initiatives and these earlier efforts that did the same with scientific education? So for readers who haven't read the book, let me give you a little bit of context uh, to help make sense of of what this chapter is about. So uh, Dan's referring to a chapter that involves the Asia Foundation, which is one of these CIA uh, proprietary organizations, and its partnership with a group of American biologists, the Biological Sciences Curriculum Study, who had been working on a textbook reform program. And so starting in the late 1950s, uh, many different scientific disciplines, um, mostly scientists at universities, not teachers, became very deeply involved in reimagining what uh, high school science education should look like in the United States. And so they started working on these books first uh, for kids in the United States. But in very short order, the uh, groups that were interested in U.S. culture diplomacy from the U.S. Information Agency to the State Department to organizations like the Asia Foundation were extremely interested in this idea about using these textbooks to promote um, American ways of thinking about science over the world. Now, what's important to understand about why these science textbooks became so popular and such a, a live wire issue when they did has to do with uh, Sputnik in 1957. It seemed like the Soviets were winning the space race. And the Americans were trying to figure out why that was the case. Now, you could offer a whole lot of different reasons for why this was the case, but many people, particularly in Congress, decided to fixate on uh, education, uh, particularly uh, high school and elementary education. Now, this doesn't quite make sense as a short-term problem to solving the uh, space race gap, to winning the space race. Uh, you know, this is going to take many, many years for a kid who is 15 in, in 1960 uh, to uh, have the kind of expertise to be working on the space race to get the Americans to the moon. But this was one of the solutions that was uh, was pursued at the time. And it's really a testament to just how much anxiety there was about the broader public status of science. And so in Dan's question, I hear these you know, concerns about are the Americans keeping up with science education in other places in the world. And one of the ways that, that you see this is in a very heated discussion at the moment about visas for Chinese scientists in the United States. So uh, you see a deep anxiety about if Chinese scientists are coming to the United States, that they must be extracting knowledge, right? Without recognizing that um, Americans also need access to uh, knowledge produced in other places by other people and people of other nationalities. Um, and that Americans also stand to benefit from uh, collaboratory relationships. So I think my answer to this question, instead of really commenting on the specifics for programming or coding, would be to say that these notions about are we keeping up with our competitors, 
uh, are ongoing, they often go back to these ideas about kind of future generations and are future generations learning enough, this idea that maybe there's some deficit. But it would be more helpful in general to think about uh, the ways that uh, scientists around the world benefit from working together and uh, how we can uh, play on each other's strengths. Although the Cold War has been over for three decades, has the way our scientific institutions developed during that time impacted how they operate today? So one of the reasons that I think this period is so interesting to study in the history of American science is that so many of the institutions that are still uh, really important in American science, like the National Science Foundation and the National Academies, really took their current shape during this time period, um, during the late 1940s and early 1950s. So the language that we developed to talk about science, but especially scientific freedom, has been really dominant for really the past 50 or 60 years. Now, all that said, my answer to this question is a little different now than when it was uh, when my book first came out in 2018. When this book came out, uh, many scientists, when they found themselves under attack, were still reverting back to this Cold War language that science is apolitical, um, this language of science and freedom, that science has no politics. You absolutely saw that language on display in the 2017 March for Science. But what's happened over the past four years, you know, during the Trump administration, and particularly after 2020, um, and the, you know, the series of crises that we face, but particularly with the pandemic, is that there's been just a much broader realization that actually, yes, of course, science is political. And people may mean different things when they say science is political, but it's very hard to look at the current uh, configuration of scientific bodies and what's happened to scientific advisory groups in various administrations and say science has no politics because it quite obviously does. And President Biden incorporated some of this language about listening to the science into his campaign. Uh, several scientific publications, including Nature and Scientific American, both made an endorsement in the presidential election, uh, kind of explicitly saying, yes, science has a politics. We know this. The question is, what kind of politics do we want science to have? So in a lot of ways, the crises of the past few years in science has really, um, I think, led to a reckoning within American scientific institutions, where for the first time in 60 years, we're actually thinking about different ways to talk about the relationship between um, science and politics, hopefully in ways that are more generative, that can uh, lead to more trust between American scientists and the American people. And hopefully, um, you know, better futures, not only for Americans, but for people all around the world. Thank you, Audra, for sharing your work and your perspectives with us. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Audra Wolf's book is Freedom's Laboratory, The Cold War Struggle for the Soul of Science from Johns Hopkins University Press. This has been a podcast from the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. You can find more resources for exploring this topic, other podcasts, video forums, archival spotlights, as well as opportunities to connect with our community of scholars at chstm.org. This podcast is made possible with the generous support of the Pew Charitable Trusts, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, and the Rita Allen Foundation.